Well, it is good to be together again here this evening. Uh, definitely look forward to Brother Joseph coming back from vacation and pray that he and his family have had a good and restful time together in Florida uh, for sure. We are on our own tonight, so we're going to try not to be too mischievous and get into too much trouble since we are about the pastor. <laughs> but I want us to do a little bit of a different study here together this evening. I want us to dive into talking about actually how to study the Scripture. How do we dive into the text of the Word of God? And by way of introduction, I want to give you a couple of things here as we start out. And first of all, let's talk about the basic calling of the pastor. The basic fundamental calling of the pastor is to preach the Word of God. Uh, that's according to 2 Timothy chapter 4. The pastor's declaration of biblical truth should be a model for believers as to how they approach the text of the Word of God. In other words, whenever Brother Joseph stands up here and declares the truth from the pulpit, it's not just that we are listening to him expound and to do so accurately, it's also that he is setting before us a faithful model and example as to how we interpret the Word of God. In other words, you should be able to listen to your pastor's sermons and not only hear biblical truth, but see a consistent, faithful method, method for approaching the text. And I think that we see that with Brother Joseph. I think Brother Harold exhibited the exact same thing as well that they worked step by step through books of the Bible, seeking to rightly interpret everything within its proper context. And that's obviously the important point, within its proper context. I was once talking with an individual, and they told me that the Bible contradicted itself. And I asked them, how does the Bible contradict itself? And they said that it contradicts itself because if you interpret it outside of its context, you can make it mean whatever you want it to. <laughs> and I said, of course. <laughs> if you're not going to read it rightly, you can make it mean whatever you want it to say. Um, just like I can do if your words right here is, is that individual was talking to me. And so that is why verse by verse preaching through Scripture is so vital so that you see everything within its context. So that's one thing I want to give you by introduction. A pastor should faithfully preach in such a way that models consistency in interpreting the Word of God. Paying attention to that kind of detail while sitting under the weekly sermons will help us interpret the text. Secondly, by way of introduction, I want to break down two different types of Bible reading. This comes from Paul Washer, so I can't take credit for it myself, but it is a very helpful idea. On the one hand, you have reading your Bible with your boots on, on the other hand, you have reading your Bible with your boots off. Let me give you an example. Reading the Bible with your boots on is hard work, right? I don't know if you're like me, but whenever I put my boots on for the day to go work in the bee yard, it's because there's so much mud that I can't wear a regular shoe, and it's hard work. I need that tough boot to go outside and to do a hard job. In the same way, when we talk about reading your Bible with your boots on, we're mentioning that kind of a concept. Suppose one of your children or your grandchildren comes to you and they ask you, what does the Bible teach about alcohol? And as a result of that question, you decide that you're going to trace down every single usage of the word alcohol 
and wine and strong drink in the entire word of God. That's hard work. That is very detailed work because you're going through each and every step to seek to interpret everything in its context to build a cohesive understanding as to exactly what the Bible teaches on that subject. That's reading the Bible with your boots on. That's absolutely necessary. We need that kind of hard work. But you know, if you leave your boots on all the time, sometimes you get a sore foot, don't you? Sometimes your legs get a little tired from carrying those muddy boots around all day. Sometimes you just need to relax as you read the Word of God. You just need to delight your soul in the Scripture. There is an appropriate time to set back and to drink coffee and to read a chapter of the Bible and to pray and to read with your boots off where you're not tracing down all of the Greek terms and the Hebrew words and all of the phrases and all of that. And so whenever we go through this tonight, keep that in mind, that you have to have a healthy balance on reading the Bible with your boots on and your boots off. Do you see what I'm getting at here with that kind of a distinction? Does anybody have any questions about that at all? Okay. So now I want to give you two different categories for studying the Scripture. And this distinction is really important. It's going to massively impact how you build your theology. When it comes to theological study, there are two primary realms. Notice I said primary, not exclusively. First, you have the overall themes of the Bible. And then secondly, you have each and every individual passage. So as an example, if you wanted to trace the theme of the covenants over the Scripture... You might go to Ephesians chapter 1, which we just saw Brother Joseph preach through, where you see God having a plan to redeem a people before the foundation of the world. And then you might go to the book of Genesis and see how that outplays itself in the garden and then go forward to Noah, where God covenants with Noah and with Abraham and with Moses, and then forward to David, where he covenants with David as to the king who will come and take the eternal throne. And then you would go forward into the new covenant, which comes to fruition after the cross, after the resurrection. And putting all of these things together, you're tracing a theme across the entire Word of God. However, you would do that by drilling down into specific individual passages. In other words, you would go to Genesis 12, Genesis 15, and Genesis 17 to understand God's covenants with Abraham. And if you don't interpret those texts rightly, you're not going to understand the overall theme across Scripture. And so these two, they work together, that we have to rightly interpret the individual text to then understand the entire theme across the Bible. Because if all you do is impose systems on top of the text, then you're going to be making the Word of God, you're going to be twisting it to say whatever you want it to say. But if you build these systems, these themes from what Scripture actually says, then you have an accurate understanding. You have a right biblical theology. I need to rightly interpret each individual passage if I'm going to understand the whole. Now, I want us to go into a particular book here tonight so that we can begin to explore these things as it relates to studying the Word. You'll notice that I gave you an outline of the book of Colossians. Hopefully, I think everybody has one of those. I preached a 24-sermon series through Colossians last year at the church I was interim pastor at. 
And so tonight we're going to be going through each and every one of those sermons, which I have right here on my iPad here this evening. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> now this, this outline, the, the goal of this is to give you something that generates ideas for your own study. We'll reference it a couple of times tonight. But the idea is so that you can see how to break down an entire book of the Scripture. And a book like Colossians is good for that because it's small enough that you can begin to get your arms around it. You're not reading one of the Gospels or something like that that is a little bit larger and takes more time. And so what we want to do when coming to a book of the Bible is to understand both the entire puzzle and each individual piece of that puzzle. How many of you have ever put together a thousand-piece puzzle before in your life? How many of you started but didn't finish? A few, yes. <laughs> we all know that. But it's quite the process, right? Now, imagine that you have all of these pieces laid out on the table, but you don't have the picture on the box to know what you're trying to achieve. It'd be almost impossible put that puzzle together, wouldn't it? Now, now reverse the situation and imagine that you have the picture, but you're missing two or three of the individual pieces. You're back in the same spot. You're not going to be able to entirely put the puzzle together. And I want to contend that approaching a book of the Bible, it's eerily similar to putting together that thousand-piece puzzle. If you try to interpret each individual passage apart from the context of the book as a whole, apart from the themes of the book as a whole, you're going to go astray at one point or another because you don't have the picture on the box that shows you how to put the whole thing together. But on the other end of that, if you don't interpret every single individual passage rightly, it's going to be just like you're missing a puzzle piece because you're going to be missing a part of the whole that would help you put the entire thing together. You're not going to understand the entire argument. And so let's look at Colossians as an example here of how to dive into the Word. Let's ask a basic question. Who is Paul writing to as he is pinning this epistle from prison? Who's his audience? Church in Colossae. Okay, so let's survey the book a little bit here to see what we can pick up about the congregation, about its situation, about the members of this church, and look at the historical context first of all. Paul starts out here in chapter 1. We see his standard greeting in verses 1 through 2. And then he goes into verses 3 through 6, uh, talking about his thankfulness for this church, the reality that they have the true gospel. And he is just expressing his gratitude for them in Christ. He mentions that he prays for them. And so we see a lot of thankfulness here. And then we come to verses 7 through 8. Just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant, he is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. So Paul learned about their love in the Spirit from this individual named Epaphras. Notice that here. What else do we see about Epaphras? They learned about the gospel from this man, according to verse 7. So what would that lead us toward a conclusion of? He's probably the one who is involved in the founding of the church, right? If he's the one initially sharing the gospel with them, then he's almost certainly the one who was the church's founder or a group of men who founded the church. 
But was Paul involved at all in the founding of the church in Colossae? Well, look at Colossians chapter 2, verse 1. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face. Paul, Paul had never been here before. He had never been amongst this congregation, and yet you see that he has a heart for them. Now, does picking up on a little detail like that really matter in our Bible study? I mean, does it matter that you pick up that Paul loves this church if he had never been to? Of course it does. Because that shows us how we should think about the church in China who is under communism. It shows us how we should think about our brothers and sisters in Islamic countries who are being persecuted. That we should have a love for these congregations. We should be praying for them. We should have a care for them as Christian brothers and sisters. And we get that from texts like this one, where it's a seemingly small detail that we could glance over, but it is actually important. So these small details matter. Now Epaphras, he's mentioned again in chapter 4, verse 12. Chapter 4, verse 12. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers, that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. So Epaphras clearly is one of the church in Colossae. Apparently, Paul thinks a tremendous amount of him, calling him a faithful servant of Christ, mentioning his prayer here. But we see another very interesting passage that mentions Epaphras. This is where this ties into our topic of studying Scripture. It's the only other mention outside of the book of Colossians. And it's in the book of Philemon. Philemon, verse 23. Turn over there with me, and you're probably going to want to keep your finger in the book of Philemon. Go over to Hebrews, take a left, and you're right there. Philemon, verse 23. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends greetings to you. So here, don't you think that's an interesting tidbit for us to pick up on? That the only other time that Epaphras is mentioned is in this letter to Philemon. Now what what should be going off in our minds if we're thinking rightly at this point? Right, we should be wondering, is there some kind of a tie here? Is there a tie between Philemon and the letter to the church in Colossae? So, how would we begin to investigate that? Well, a foundational way is, are there any other figures mentioned in both of these books? Right? Absolutely there are. Colossians chapter 4, verse 9. And with him, Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother, who is one of you, they will tell you of everything that has taken place here. So, Onesimus is one of the church in Colossae. But hold on a second. Who did Onesimus run away from? The book of Philemon, verse 10, Paul says that he is appealing to Philemon for his child in the faith, Onesimus. So we're starting to see some interesting connections just by tracing these names a little bit. But now, can we continue this even further? Notice that you see a man named Archippus mentioned in Colossians chapter 4, verse 17. And say to Archippus, see that you fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord. So apparently Archippus is a minister in the church at Colossae, and Paul feels the need to charge him to be faithful to Christ here. 
again, I'm going to give you a guess here. What is the only other book that mentions Archippus? <laughs> Any clues at all? <laughs> Philemon. Philemon, verse 2. And Aphia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and the church in your house. So Archippus, this minister at Colossae, is mentioned in connection to being a fellow soldier right before Paul addresses the church in Philemon's home. So apparently Philemon had a church in his house. Archippus was a minister in Colossae. Onesimus ran away from Philemon and was one of the Colossians. So since Onesimus was of the Colossians, since he was Philemon's slave, since Archippus was one of the ministers in Colossae, also mentioned in Philemon's letter, where does that leave us? Philemon had to be one of the Colossians because of the fact that his slave resided there. And so since Philemon housed the church where he was at, that means that the church in Colossae met in Philemon's in fact, individuals like John MacArthur go so far as to say that the tie is so strong that the letter to the church in Colossae and the letter to Philemon, they were actually sent with one another. Now, I'm not going to go quite that far because the text doesn't necessarily say that, although it's probably likely. Uh, but we certainly see this strong tie between these two books. But how did we trace that? We just looked at some of the minor details. We just looked at some of the names in the opening and the ending of both of the letters and looked at how they were used over the Scripture. We just investigated the information, that's all. You don't have to own special software or anything like that. You don't have to have Logos or eSword. I have both of those, they're great, but you don't have to have that to trace this kind of information. All you have to do is turn pages in your Bible, that's it. And just seeing the way that these names are used, you can pick on, on a lot. So we see that the church met in Philemon's home. That's a neat tidbit, right? That's kind of cool information, especially to a theological nerd like myself. I find tidbits like that kind of fascinating. But how does that actually help us interpret the book? That's the question. How does that help us understand what Paul is writing to this church? Look at Colossians chapter 4, verse 1. Colossians chapter 4, verse 1. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. Now, don't you think that it adds a whole other layer of context whenever we see the tie between Philemon and Onesimus and Paul writing this to the church in Colossae? I'd say so. It helps us rightly interpret everything that's going on here in this church it adds a lot more detail to this scenario in terms of a specific situation that this church would have been familiar with and would have been walking through. It's something that would be pertinent as you're trying to bring that up in a study of the book of Colossians, to bring up Philemon and Onesimus' relationship and how Paul's advice to Philemon relates to what he is saying in chapter 4, verse 1 here. It's a pivotal example. It's a pivotal tie as we're interpreting these things and seeking to understand. We need to learn to pay attention to these small details when interpreting the Scripture. It's like a man with a head full of silver once told me. 
He said, count your pennies before your dollars. Pay attention to the small details, then build up to the bigger ones. But now, what else about the letter to the church in Colossae? We saw how to gain some historical details about the key figures, the situation and all of that. Does anybody have any questions about that before we move into the next section here? All right. What we need to ask is now, now that we see some of the historical context, how do we get our arms around what Paul is addressing? What, what are the primary themes that he is writing about when he writes to this church? Right? The biblical authors, they had a specific thought process. They were inspired by the Holy Spirit. And so one of the keys is for us to pick up on those themes as we're reading through books of the Bible which then helps us to understand the entire book. And so let's take a look at one of the themes here in this letter. Notice Colossians chapter 1, verses 21 through 23. And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Now we might glance over this. This this might be a verse that you get in your Bible app as a verse of the day that you think is amazing. But it's even more amazing whenever you understand that this is one of the primary themes of the letter that Paul is going to continue to develop. Notice that last little section in verse 23. That section that says, if you indeed continue in the faith. Now, is Paul just giving a general warning here? Is he just going around saying, hey, be careful that you don't get entangled. Be careful that you don't get led astray. No, he's giving this for a specific reason. He knows that there is a real and present danger facing the church in Colossae a danger that he's going to continue to develop and to point to specifically. He knows they are the target of false teaching. They are the target of a dangerous heresy. And what do they need? They need to be reminded of the greatness of Christ. They need to be reminded of the glory of Christ. They need to be encouraged to be strong in the Lord, to not back away from the faith, but to continue and to press in and to advance in maturity. It's like Brother Don Cochran told me one time, He said that Colossians is the hymn book, meaning H-I-M. It's all about Christ because that's who Paul is pointing to here. And I want you to notice how this theme develops over the letter. Look down at verses 27 and 28 in chapter 1. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is in Christ in you the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. So notice the contrast here again, pointing out the glory of Christ, pointing out the magnificence of Christ, and warning everyone. This is the two themes that are running here through this letter. Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2, verses 2 through 4. That their hearts may be encouraged being knit together in love to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. 
I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. It sounds like Paul is, is just stuck on repeat, doesn't he? That, that he's going through this again and again. Follow Christ. Don't be led astray. Does everybody see this theme here? Are there any questions about that? Do you, do you see this developing in your letter? Okay. So here's the pivotal question. Why does this matter? How is Paul going to use this in his argument to teach the Colossian church? Go to Colossians chapter 2, verses 11 through 15. In him also you were circumcised with the circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Okay, so what's all this language about circumcision and everything else about here in this text? Well, notice... What's, what's the theme of these verses? The theme of these verses is putting away the flesh by the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's about dying to the old man of sin and being risen to walk in the Lord. It is Christ who cuts the old man away. It is Christ who raises us to new life. But that was prophesied in the Old Testament. That's what the physical sign of circumcision pointed to the need for man to have the sinful heart cut away. So why does Paul bring that here into the context of this letter when addressing this church who has issues going on with them being the target of false teaching? We get our answer to that question in chapter 2, down in verses 20 through 23. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why is if you were still alive in the world do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Notice that last part. They are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Worth nothing at all. That is our theme coming to full fruition. Paul says, you want to overcome the flesh? You want to overcome sin? Trust in Christ, who is the one who cuts the old man of sin away. These worthless religions, these false teachings, they are of no value for stopping the flesh at all. There is only power in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so what has he just done? He's taken this theme across the entire letter from chapter 1 all the way through chapter 2 here. He has developed it, this concept of trusting in Christ and showing the fact that these false religions are worthless. They are of no value. He's taken that, and he has developed that now to its fullest. And he has also taken one of the primary themes of the Old Testament, circumcision, and he has tied it into all of this, pointing them to the truth that it is Christ alone who can cut the man of sin away. But you're not going to see that 
if you're not going through thinking about the biblical author's argument as a whole. If you're not thinking through what is he trying to write about? What are the main themes that he is trying to address? And so as you're going through a book like Colossians, and you notice it sure seems like Paul is saying, follow Christ and don't be led astray, make a note of that. And see how this continues to progress and advance over the book as a whole. But you see this great truth. You see this great truth here. And we're left if the fact that Paul has tied this together, that it is Christ who is the promised offspring of Abraham who comes and fulfills all that the Old Testament shadows like circumcision pointed to, and he brings them to their fruition here in this text. That's vitally important for the life of the local church. Does everybody understand how that process just worked as it pertains to going through in following that theme, and building it, and seeing it. Are there any questions about that at all? All right, I want us to consider another one of these. Go forward into chapter 3. Chapter 3, verses 1 through 2. We have a fairly well-known section of Scripture here. Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 2. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. Now what is this text talking about when he mentions things that are above? Is it saying don't go vote, don't be involved in the world, don't enjoy family and good food and all of these things? Is it saying that you're supposed to just pick up a harp and strum on it and think about heaven sitting on the sideline your entire life? No. Nothing wrong with playing a harp. Not my talent, but there's nothing wrong with playing a harp. You should vote. But none of those things have anything at all whatsoever to do with what Paul is addressing here in Colossians chapter 3. What did he just finish talking about in chapter 2? He finished pointing the believers to Christ, showing the worthless nature of these false religions. Now, as we flow into chapter 3, You will notice on your outline that I have it here. This is the point where Paul discusses seeking Christ and not the world. That's a natural flow that you would expect, right? That if Paul says all of these rules of man-made religion, all of them are worth nothing, the next question is, well, then how are we to live? How are we to follow Christ? What does it look like to be faithful to Him? And that's exactly what he moves forward to address here in chapter 3. He says, on the one hand, you seek that which is above, and on the other, you, fo- you need to not be focused on the things of earth. What's the next question? The next question is, what are the things that are above, and what are the things of the earth? Well, he tells us specifically what he means down in verses 5 through 11. He says, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them. But now you must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self of its practices, and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in 
So what does it mean to not be focused on earthly things? It means that you're not following the sins of the world. That you're seeking to put them to death. That you're having your mind renewed by the knowledge of the Creator. That you're understanding the unity that we have as brothers and sisters in the Lord. That you're seeking to cast those sins of the flesh away. But what does it mean to focus on things above? He, he answers that all the way from verse 12 in chapter 3 down through chapter 4, verse 6. Notice that verse 12 here in chapter 3, it starts with the phrase, put on them. And what does he go on to talk about? Compassion, kindness, humility, meekness. Letting the word of Christ dwell richly in us. Then in verses 18 through 25, he discusses what it looks like for Christians to live faithfully in households. Then in chapter 1, verse 4, he discusses servants and masters. Excuse me, chapter 4, verse 1. There we go. In verse 2, he, he talks about prayer. Then he closes out that section in verses 5 and 6 by talking about how to deal with those outside of the faith. In other words, setting your mind on things above, living for Christ, it has bearing for everything in your life, all the way from how you relate to your family, to how you interact with unbelievers, to the very disposition of your mind and your heart throughout the day. To set your mind on things above is to be focused on Christ. It's to be focused on living godly every single day. It's to look forward to the joy of being with Him for an eternity and to live to please Him now, today. But again, notice that this comes from seeing these themes woven together throughout the entire letter. So we've seen historical context. We've discussed the importance of seeing themes. I want us to take a look at something else. We all have that moment where we're studying a book of the Bible we come upon one of those passages, right? One of those passages where we're studying and then we kind of lean back in our chair, not exactly for sure what to think or what to do next or how we're supposed to understand this. And so that's something else that we have to talk about. How do we work through those difficult passages? Look at Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 18. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through Him and for Him. And He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. And He is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything He might be preeminent. Now, part of this passage that a lot of people get hung up on is what does it mean for Christ to be the firstborn of all creation? We can, and, and we did back several months ago, we, we opened that up by going through the larger context of how that word firstborn is used across the Old and the New Testament. That's important to do. But for our purposes tonight, I want to ask the question, how can we seek to understand this just by looking at the context of this specific passage. And this brings us to an important point. When interpreting Scripture, notice how the same word is used within a certain book or by the same biblical author. Notice the word firstborn here. 
The word firstborn, it appears in both verse 15 and verse 18. Same Greek word, prototokos. If Paul uses the same Greek word back to back, it seems like he's trying to emphasize something to me, that he's trying to draw our attention to something. In this text, it's not saying that Christ was literally a creation made by the Father any more than it's saying Christ was literally the first person who has ever risen from the dead. It's discussing power, preeminence, position. That word preeminence is explicitly within this text. It's saying that Christ is the divine, sovereign Lord over all creation. That He has a special place as the one who created all things and who sustains all things and for whom all things exist. Christ raised Lazarus from the dead before the cross or the resurrection ever took place. But Jesus was the first one to die who shall never die again. And His resurrection is the one which gives us hope of our resurrection at the last day. And so just by seeing how this term is used here back to back, we can see that Paul's not talking literally. He's not saying Jesus is literally the firstborn of creation. He's literally the firstborn from the dead. He's using these as symbols to show the power of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's another key aspect that keeps us from going astray whenever we're seeking to interpret Scripture. And so whenever you approach a biblical passage, seek to pay attention to the context, pay attention to the overall theme, and pay attention to how the same word is used repetitively within, the, within that particular book. I want to give you a few things in closing here tonight. If you told me that I only had one tool outside of the Bible for sermon preparation for the rest of my life, I would hands down choose the treasury of Scripture knowledge. The treasury of Scripture knowledge, it's a tool that what it is, is it's cross-references for verses in the Bible. Especially if you're, if you're involved in teaching the Bible, this is a must-have. You can get it physically, you can get it digitally. It's free online at tsk-online.com. So just as an example, uh, in Romans 1.1, when Paul says that he is a servant of Christ Jesus, the treasury of Scripture knowledge is going to give you cross-references where that specific word, servant, is used in the New Testament. Some may be very pertinent. Some may be not so pertinent. That's something you're going to have to sort through. But that is very helpful in multiple situations. R.A. Torrey, the man who developed that tool, is not always solid on everything. So let that certainly be said. But literally all this is is cross-referencing. And it's very good at that. If you're looking for commentaries, John Gill's commentaries are free online. He was a preacher at the same church that... Charles Spurgeon was at roughly 100 years before Spurgeon was there. Uh, John Calvin's commentaries are also helpful. Both men have their strengths. Both men have their weaknesses. No one is perfect for sure, but they are very helpful in many ways. John MacArthur's study Bible, John MacArthur's commentaries are beneficial. He is specifically good at giving the historical context and showing you how Greek words are used. That does not mean that I agree with John MacArthur on every single verse in his commentaries. He has yet to convince me of his view on the end times, but as I always say, should I be wrong, I am willing to change my view in the middle of the air, for sure. But he has yet to convince me of that yet, and he is very incredibly faithful, and he is incredibly steadfast in the text of Scripture. Last thing here tonight. I think this is very important, so I saved it for last. It is important that whenever we're studying Scripture that we cultivate a desire for God's Word. 
Psalm 119, 14 through 16. In the way of your testimonies I delight, as much as in all riches, I will meditate on your precepts and fix my eyes on your ways. I will delight in your statutes. I will not forget your word. Notice the joy that the psalmist has in the word of God. Paul reiterates that in Romans 7.22. Paul says, For I delight in the law of God in my inner being. Sometimes whenever you first start studying the Bible and you're first starting reading it every day, it's a little bit hard to set that alarm for 5 a.m. and get up and stay awake whenever you're first trying that, isn't it? Sometimes there are days when you feel like you just wish you could sleep a little bit longer. But keep on doing it. Keep on finding the time to be consistent to read Scripture every day and develop a joy in the Word of God. You're not just reading it so that you can go out and win a theological debate. We're reading the Scripture so that we might know God and we might know how He has called us to live for His glory. And we might find joy in God and we might find joy in His holy Word and in His righteous ways. And take a sheet of of paper, and as you're going through these books of the Bible, write down the historical context, the themes, the things that you see that are repetitive. And as you do that over and over and over and over again, it's going to help you put the entire thing together to understand what these books are saying. Are there any questions or thoughts or comments before we go into our prayer time here tonight? All right, well, it was good to be here again this evening, and I shall turn it over to Brother Ron for the prayer time.